Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Kellen and Alex Show. This was recorded September 19th, 2019 from the Radio Lab at Franciscan University of Steubenville. If you want to follow on the Kellen and Alex Show live, we go live on every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we go live at twitch.tv slash Hingus Tringus. That's twitch.tv slash H-I-N-G-U-S-T-R-I-N-G-U-S. We hope to see you all there on Thursday. We also release the podcast on all the different podcasting sites for your enjoyment the day after on Friday. In this edition of the podcast, we get into the Amazon Synod and the role of women in the church and women priesthood, if that's even possible. We also talk a little bit about gun control. Welcome to The Callan and Alex Show. FRSCC 88.3, you know it's me, and I'm with Alex Denley. All right, Kellen Lake here. And we are going to have some very important topics tonight, but we're going to start off with our first topic, which is the Veritas Society. And they are currently debating on whether their first debate topic should be, should we have women on the front lines or the gun gun bans, right? That's right. Gun bans. We're trying to figure out our first debate topic. So the first debate, Dumbox debate, put it on your calendars. Uh, It's going to be on Sunday, September 29th. And um, yeah, we're going back and forth with the topics, but most likely it's going to be uh, this house believes that the United States should ban all assault weapons. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. So meaning assault weapons being uh, like AR-15s. Okay. Right. Uh, this has been pushed numerous times after mass shootings and and other things that uh, a full assault weapons ban, right? And they they quote, okay, Europe is very uh, there's you know not mass shootings in Europe, there's not mass shootings in Australia, and they don't have AR-15, so neither should we. Um, that's kind of the the argument against uh, AR-15s and, and owning them. Yeah, I know that's uh, definitely a big, big, big topic here these days and. United States, like I mentioned last time, there's more guns than there are people. That means that means there's more than 330 million guns in the United States, Alex. Do you have any idea how many guns that is? I mean, it's think about it. People in probably everybody in Texas has a thousand guns in their house, okay? And they probably have a thousand acres each. It's insane. But, you know, I was thinking that's actually a really good topic. And especially, I think it would get controversial for women on the front lines. I don't know. I mean, if you have a lot of women there at that debate, which you probably will if you do that, you know, just be ready because but I'm not saying, you know, intellectually bring people together and debate. But that is a little on the you know, you know what I'm saying? It's it's a little controversial. Yeah. Um, but, you know, hey, if they want to serve it, on the front lines, it, you know, yeah, you know, you know I, I'm not up for surfing. Yeah, on the front not, lines. <laughs> you're <laughs> Does up. Anybody want to you're up for volunteer. Su- you're up for surfing in the Pacific, Alex. We know that. Yeah, right. that's right. I, I'm not looking to, to shoot people in the Pacific. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, so or we're or and we may end up doing this topic later on in the line as well. Um, we actually put it on our Facebook page as a as a Facebook poll um, and the uh, we got a lot of replies. I think we had a hundred and something replies. Woo! On, this house believes that women should not be on the front lines or should not be allowed on the front lines. Um, it's it's a topic that was a little bit more heated uh, a little bit ago. The military since has kind of come out and said, no, uh, we don't really like that. Obviously, there's lots of women in the military as well doing all sorts of jobs. But Wonderful things. Front lines is um, 
is one of those things. And, you know, when generals are, are asked, like, you know, why, why don't they allow them on the front lines and stuff? It's like, okay, well, most of them are weaker than men, and we want our best soldiers out in the front. I, I mean, <laughs> well, to be to be fair, I mean, to be like, naturally, men are stronger than women. That's just, you know, that's just a fact. That's how it is. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I mean sexist. I, <laughs> <laughs> According okay. to our modern standards. You know what I'm saying, though. Yeah, 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 you yeah. know what I'm saying. But, yeah. um... That doesn't go for all for all people, but, you know, generally, but I was thinking, you know, that's actually a really good topic because you're all you're engaging. It's not like anyways you have, you know, both sexes at the debate. You know what I'm saying? You have a good amount of both men and women at the debate, but I'll definitely draw on a lot of women for sure. But in a good way, I don't think it's going to be like stupid, crazy. You know, it's just but I think it's going to be it's important thing to definitely discuss. Um do you think though that do we really have front lines these days? I mean, I mean, think about it. Where, how would we describe? How do we break this down? The word front line. Tell me, how do we break this down? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, it's not like we're in World War One, where it's like Germany and France, and there's no man's land in trenches nowadays. It's um, and a lot of the warfare today is in the air, or you know, you're in a tank, or you're on a um, an aircraft carrier, or something like that, right? And, um, and then you have operations like, uh, a lot more of the operations, you know, since we're not in a, like a war against Russia or something like that, there's not a lot of front lines gets kind of weird, you know, front lines was a better concept back when like they had like charges, you know, well, like, in the revolutionary be, war when they just lined like people up after yeah, the other, they weren't having a debate if you should have women there at that time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but regardless, uh, yeah, our front lines has, has changed. So if you look at. I mean, if you were still in Afghanistan, if you look at the operations in Afghanistan, a lot of them are um, either take control of an area or they're quick hits, right? So you want to go into an area quickly, you bomb the heck out of it, and then you come in and like clean up. And um, or you're trying to take out a particular group in a, a Taliban area or something like that, right? So, yeah, in what way can a woman, regardless of how like, strong she is or whatever else, obviously there's outliers, um, be able to take on that task. And, um, should we allow that? Um, and there's, there's a lot of things that need to be considered there. Uh, let's say if one of the soldiers gets wounded and needs to be taken, taken out, um, can a woman carry her comrade, um, out of battle? If not, then does she have the place to be at the at the front lines with these these kind of hit operations or or stuff in Afghanistan? And um, you know, there's other concerns. I, I think one of the major concerns is them being on an operating base, let's say out somewhere. If if it's the front lines, you may have an operating base that's out in kind of Taliban area, and they may be there for months, and they're going to be around men all the time. And so there's all those concerns with that. And those are some serious concerns. You know, these men are these men are gone for months at a time, and um, so you you put yourself in really difficult situations with that. Uh, so if they're going to be in that area as well, and then you just have you know the people who you could justify as having the strength to do so, you're still in a tough position because they're going to be out there with just mostly men, right. which is tough. Yep. And um, and is it justifying enough to just say we can allow anyone now? What, how it's kind of been implemented is, you know, they have to go through the exact same training and many of them can't do the exact same training. I think like 
what was it a year or two ago we had the first uh female finish like marines boot camp or something like that right yeah with a bunch I of men. That. do you remember that yeah, yeah. I, remember I don't that. remember her name but yeah, i don't remember yeah but i remember that yeah and so i mean the generals are like look we're not going to lower the standards if you want to come to the front lines and be a marine and all that stuff just fit all the standards and she and we'll pulled see how out it goes. right she had to pull or she pulled out right she couldn't do it, or did she no? I think it? she finished. Did I don't know finish? what ended up happening. I didn't follow I, the story. I think all that bit. she eventually she finished the camp, but said, "Look, I can't do this." She didn't want to. Uh, yeah. Not that she. Uh, I think it came down to, not really. She was in shape. She was really in shape and looked good. But I think that it maybe it was more of a mental thing. I'm not sure. Just everything together, you know, being a legit marine, you know, you know how much that takes. They're the top yeah. of the top, like where the Green Berets are and the Navy SEALs. I don't exactly remember, but I think it was just too much. I, I'm not exactly sure, but I think she, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that she left. I'm pretty sure that she left, but we don't really know exactly why, but that's just my prediction. There's a lot of gender politics in this, you know, and, and, um, For sure. and feminism and, um, yeah, I mean, the military is like, look, it's for our common defense. So we want the best of the best to be out there it's not really the place to be um, trying to fight equality battles and all this type of stuff. It's by and, no means uh, sexist. It's not sexist no, at all. Yeah. I mean, why would somebody think of that as sexist? It's just saying, look, we have a, we have a, you know, an enemy here. We need the best of the best to be up here. You know, we're going to take the best of the best. If you can prove that you can be with the best of the best, we'll take you. No. But it's not whether, you know, man or female, male or female. Yeah. You know, so. And some points others have brought up that the treatment of POWs, the difference between a man and a woman is very significant. And especially, you know, according to our enemies in the Middle East. And um, and so that has to be taken into consideration as if you're captured, what type of torture and, and uh, you know, other things like that. So uh, there's just a lot of, uh, of difficulties that are just, it's, it's natural dis- difficulties. And I think, you know, this is kind of an offspurt of... Um, uh, a kind of radical feminism that wants uh, not only everything a man can do, a woman's supposed to be able to do, that's their kind of motto, but can do it better and and um, can take the man's role and in, in everything else. Uh, you know, we had a debate. Let's see. I don't know if you remember this one. This was in spring, actually. What was that? A uh, year got, ago. When we got back from Austria? Uh, no, the spring before. The bef- so this before? Is three, okay. Yes, it was spring 2018. We had a debate. Uh, this house believes... That traditional marriage roles are ideal. That was the first one I ever went to. Right. That was really good. That was a very good debate. Yeah, and it was a very interesting one. Um, it's up on our YouTube page, Veritas Society. You can watch the whole thing. Great debate. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of that was discussed. Like, okay, what are the traditional marriage roles? Okay, the man as the breadwinner and provider of the family and the father. You know, that's what it means for a father and the mother as the primary caretaker of the children. Are those ideal? That was the the debate. You know, like. Uh, in practical terms, Catholic families should be working for that state of affairs. And, you know, that's that's uh, very controversial. In very today's, controversial. In today's, um, but in today's world, yeah. And so needed to be addressed. Right. So it's kind of like we were avoiding this notion of breadwinner and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that's something that needs to be addressed for sure. And, and you did a good job addressing it, the whole Veritas Society. By the way, Veritas, check them out on Facebook, on YouTube. They're very, very great, great society here on on campus. Their goal is to promote intellectual culture on campus. They want all students to be involved in their debates. It's really mostly about getting everybody together and discussing these important topics. And you guys have really grown since 
when was your when did you guys invent this? Because it was you and Clement Harold, right? That's right. So spring of 2018 when we first launched it. So this is what are we entering into fourth semester? Fourth semester. Yeah, that's a good buildup, and you guys are still growing. Mm. And tell us about the um, newest edition of Veritas Society, the Associates. That's right. Well, the Associates is more of a, a private part of it. Or is that a private part? Of you it? can definitely. Um, uh, it's kind of our small group of people that are our supporters. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of the debates. Um, everyone's welcome. We've really seen um, a lot of benefit with this student parliamentary style or, or British parliamentary style. But we call it the student parliamentary because we're the students. We get in this kind Followed of parliamentary style. Followed in a style. British parliament, parliamentary style That's debate right. where you have um, a judge or I guess so what they call chairman. him, a chairman. And you have other people assisting him and people around and, you know, all the all the likes of, of the debate. But. Right. The thing we wanted to get away from is is most people think of debate uh, today. You know, the, the watchwords uh, dialogue, right? We're going to dialogue and all that stuff. We're just being chaotic. Yeah, it's, it's mostly kind of a, a chaotic. Um, well, usually you have two experts, right? I'm an expert in this field. You're an expert in this field. Here's the topic. And we basically just <laughs> say a bunch of rhetoric the whole time yeah. and just try and demean the other other's points. And, Thanks, Aristotle. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Try and get them to see your own way. You know what I mean? That's that's diplomacy is to, to, to help someone else see your own point. But and, you wanted uh, to change that. You wanted to change it. Right. Because most of the time people go to those type of debates and it's like bad taste in your mouth and everyone's like, you know, what did more I entrenched in their positions than when they came. Now, with the parliamentary style, you have to. Well, we have our like kind of main presenters to get it kicked off and to kind of lead the positions. And then it's open to anyone in the in the crowd to give a speech. Um, you can find us on on YouTube. We have our debates on there. They're really cool. Check um, it out. Veritas Society. It'll have our beautiful logo, uh, yellow eagle, blue background. Anyways, we we put up our praise and worship debate and our charity debate, which was on dating uh, at Franciscan. And uh, yeah, just super fun. And you, you people have to come up and actually defend their opinions and defend their views. And um, it's it's interesting. You may think like, oh, I have my position all figured out in your head and you're sitting there just kind of mulling it over while someone else is talking like, yeah, I know what I'm going to talk about. This guy's stupid and all that stuff. And you stand up in front of all your peers and it's like, wait a second, what do I really think about this thing? You know, it's a, it's a real good lesson in, it's a good lesson in a lot of things. First of all, that you don't know everything about everything, which is a nice humbling experience. And especially when you go up and kind of fumble through your speech that you're impromptu preparing, then it's like, okay, well, maybe I don't have it so clear as I thought I did in, in my mind. And then you also have to, you're, you're getting the perspective of your fellow students. Uh, you know, our most controversial debate was uh, this house believes that praise and worship music does not belong in the liturgy. That was brutal. This is at Franciscan, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we had some blowback about like even having the debate. Like, why would you have a debate like this? But you can watch the video on YouTube. It was a really positive experience because especially with topics that for the, for the debates, these are on topics that reasonable Catholics can actually disagree about, right? So we're not debating like abortion or other stuff, right? Because we... We're not doing debates that we don't fully believe in, right? Debates that each side can be reasonable Catholics, disagree about, come together, argue it out. And um, and so with uh, praise and worship music, like that's a that's pretty heated. Some people really enjoy the praise and worship music and think, yeah, we should include this as part of the liturgy in um, in these particular places because it involves the youth, right? Because the youth like it. And the other side says, look, it's not reverent. It doesn't fit the liturgy. You're demeaning the sacrifice of Calvary, which is the Mass. 
And that's pretty, I mean, this is the heart of our faith is the mass and we all gather together for worship. And, um, you could say, uh, as laity, we have a specific role in, in music and in like fulfilling that obligation. And so, uh, the conversation itself, it was, yeah, I think it was filled with, with charity in the debate, which is what we're aiming for, right? Because the, the, uh, clashing of opinions where you're just trying to beat each other over the head with your words and stuff, obviously that's unproductive and it doesn't do anything right. And, you know, we see that most prominently in Facebook and in social media and other places because it's a depersonalized debate. What we're trying to do is make it as personalized as possible. Like you have to stand in the middle of a group of students and defend why you think praise and worship music demeans the sacrifice of Calvary. Like that's, that's a tough task. (laughs) And you're having this legitimate conversation between you and your peers and it's the whole campus gathering together for it. Um, we've kind of decided with our debate topics, we have, we're going to do one political debate uh, a semester um, that reasonable Catholics can disagree on. But previously, we've done things like immigration policy. Uh, what was that one? Trump's immigration policy is opposed to Catholic values. That was a really interesting one. Some guy came from, I think he came from Columbus and had a, a sign, build that wall. <laughs> he brought it. <laughs> so we have people from all over come over and... He had a big, he had a MAGA hat and a huge build that wall. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we've had other debates like um, on the legalization of marijuana, still something hotly debated. You know, you have states like California and Colorado that are fully on the 420 blazing uh, train, uh, having a blast, I'm sure, in their their hot boxed cars. Um, And then, you know, and and debates like this, like the gun control one, Um, they're always people who are like, this shouldn't be debated and, you know, it's already settled. But when those type of people have to come to the debates and they actually sit and like participate and listen, it's like, dang, you know, uh, our kind of ivory towers of what we think we have to come down and, you know, actually deal on the battlefield in a charitable way with our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know? So, well, you know, that's how it should be, you know? So uh, just thinking about all the debates that you guys have done and everything like that. I mean, you've, you've put a good image on campus of students coming together and wanting to discuss things and putting themselves out there in the middle of a stage and expressing their opinion. Look, I can understand that people get people can get a little irritated by maybe just let's say the praise and worship debate. Somebody could say reasonless reasonably say, why would Veritas like debate this? I mean, because their because of their stances, look, how dare you infringe on my opinion on because I believe that praise and worship should be in the mass and I'm a valiant supporter of it but that doesn't make any sense when it, when you say look we want to debate this anyways so we want to bring you guys together and get a common understanding of this because when everybody speaks we all learn something and we want to keep learning I'd like I tell everybody we're always learning and it's important for us to put ourselves in a position where we can actually do that. And that's what Veritas does. I think the praise and worship debate was great. It was really well executed. And it was, that was the one that you guys packed the Gentile gallery, right? To the very top. Mm. That was crazy. Um, You guys did a really good job. And I think, you know, even though it was, I wouldn't really consider it controversial in, in a way 
at least before you, you know, when you enter in there and then you start getting into the debate, it all evens out saying, look, we can reasonably debate this. You know, why would we not? Because each mass is a sacrifice. It's the sacrifice is repeated over and over again, each mass. You know, it's the same sacrifice, but it's a reliving of Calvary. And I think that while we have these debates, we should keep that in mind that, look, Jesus sacrificed everything for us. Let's put his, let's put his stuff into action. Let's debate these things. Let's talk about it. What Jesus did, the parts of the mass, everything. That's important. Because it's it's a big thing in our church today, especially, like I said last podcast, and this is very unfortunate, Pew Research said that only 30% of Catholics in America actually believe that it's the true body and blood. Shocking. Very shocking. That's why we need people like you guys, like the Veritas Society, to bring people together and reasonably discuss these things. We have to have more involvement of people. And I think it's just really important. What you guys are doing is great. And, you know, keep it up. I know that we're we're seniors, man, and this is our last year. But, you know, the destiny shall live on, I guess. I think one thing that we're really discovering is the value of local conversation. I think most of our conversation has been kind of uh, has been more and more abstracted from the locale. And uh, this is the notion of Catholic subsidiarity that the local community has to have this, you will have to have a value of a local community. And more and more, our, our cultural conversation is more, uh, it's spread so much because of social media and instant uh, transfer of information that the conversation gets so large and there's so many variants of opinion instantaneously given that we lose this local cohesiveness of what do we want to do for our locale. And um, and when that happens, everything, because there's such a wide variety of people all across the country and they have varying different views, everyone says we're so divided, right? And one of the reasons is because all the the conversation has to be in a way local as well. It has to be our, our kind of common, where we are, who are the people around us? Let's talk with the people who are close to us in a personal way. And um, it's a great phrase and uh, that Peter Crave coined, um, either him or C.S. Lewis, but who's, you know, Peter Crave loves C.S. Lewis. He calls it telescopic philanthropy, where we love the things that are far away and we neglect things that are close. And, um, you know, we're very generous in our hearts to those things that are like way abstract and gone, but you won't love your neighbor. You know what I mean? That that's a temptation. And the temptation nowadays is to have the, the conversation as a countrywide thing um, and neglecting our necessity for actual conversation where you are with the people you're around. Um, because if we don't debate these issues, we'll be divided in the locale. And then if the locale is divided, all these other locales are divided. And then the whole cultural conversation is just, it doesn't really exist. People always talk about, we, we can't have, we, no one shares ideas anymore. No one really debates each other rightly. And it's like, yeah, because it's so big. And it's so instantaneous. And it's like everything's this global, like we have to figure all the major problems of the world out. And um, it starts with the conversation and the dialogue and the debate among people who are within your your sphere, within, you know, your actual life. Not with the person in, you know, Manhattan who is spouting some article about some weird random thing, right? So what we've reclaimed here with Veritas is like, Franciscan itself, we need to have 
a conversation, a dialogue, a debate about important issues. And um, that's kind of the reclaiming of Catholic culture is um, at the locale first, and then it keeps spreading, right? And then you can have conversation about the whole thing, right? But you have to be solidified where you are. It has to be debate there. Um, Dr. Plato was telling me about uh, in medieval times, they had what was called quote libitals, which I think literally means uh, uh, about anything, basically. So they would have a master of theology or master of philosophy or something like that. who would come and visit a little town and would hold a quote libital, which means ask me basically anything. You can ask any questions. And he would stand up there for like three or four hours and people everywhere from peasants to you know, the local Duke to whoever would come up and just shoot the breeze, ask a question about anything, things all the way from like, who's the Pope and what does it mean? And to what do you think about this particular politics to whatever? And he was supposed to be able to make a reasonable response. And we actually have documents where this particular master, basically, you know, some scribe was in the crowd, like furiously writing down all the responses and they would publish it as a book, as a quote, little book. And that's, that's Catholic culture is going to the people in the locale and actually discussing these things, actually answering people's concerns and questions. And, 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 um, you know, people have this idea of the medieval age, like only some people knew things. It's like, they took an active role to make sure people understood these things. And, uh, it's just unfortunate that it's, it's both fortunate and unfortunate. We've moved to this kind of global sphere of media and global sphere of communication, but the downside of that is we're losing local communication. People are feeling more and more isolated. You know, as we talked about in our last podcast about uh, isolation leading to these mass shootings and these other things, this mental health stuff, you know, that's a real lack of local communication that people within our locale would end up in this place and no one would know about it. And uh, we can't just trust that the FBI are going to like search through their social media and just show up at their doorstep. Like there has to be... Um, the, the locale has to, you know, understand all these things and have this constant communication and dialogue with its, with its, you know, within its own people. It's just now we're so generalized, you know. Everything starts at the local level, it feels like. You have to build a solid, firm foundation first before you really go something like global or, you know, fully America. And the Veritas is doing just that. You have to start with the students, get the students really engaged because they're the life of this campus. You know, everybody would be, everybody here would be unemployed if the students weren't here, you know? So get the students engaged, then maybe work your way from there. Like you guys did. You guys went to Christendom. I mean, literally went off this campus to another campus, Christendom College. And you guys are really making an impact. So that's important. And it's, it's a good thing that you guys are doing. Yeah. I'm in contact with the Christendom guys. Uh, again, uh, we're planning on going uh, or having them actually here next semester. So if you don't know, the Christendom College has the Chester Bellock Society. Um, that's actually their model of the parliamentary debate styles, the one we actually a a adapted here, or adopted rather. Um, and we brought it here and it's worked really well. Uh, they're kind of our older brother in this uh, debate society. Um, yeah, we did a debate there. And I think this is this is something that uh, is really necessary for, for Catholic campuses moving forward is, um, having a forum where they can debate it. I mean, we we live in very tough times in the church. Um, as we saw last summer with the revelations of McCarrick and these other people and, uh, Archbishop Vigano and his letters. And, uh, now we're seeing with the Amazon Synod, which hopefully we'll get to, um, these are tough times in the church. 
And um, as we saw in the Pew Research study as well, only 30% of people who identify as Catholics in America believe that Jesus is truly substantially present in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist. That's, we, we should, once again, we should be on our knees every night for the whole night in vigil before the Holy Eucharist in reparation for that. And um, if we don't address these problems, it's just going to get worse. And more and more people are going to cease to believe in what the church believes. And um, and uh, that's why it's important if we keep having these kind of global conversations of everyone's at each other's throats and we don't form the community of the local, um, then you know, we're never really going to reclaim that. Uh, it has to be at this local level first, like you were saying. Perfect. Okay, we're going to take a quick 30-second break, and we will be right back. And we are back here at Kellen Lake along with Alex Denley. So our second topic of tonight, we are going to talk about the Amazon Senate. And if you haven't recently heard, and I don't know exactly how long it's been going on. How long has it been going on, Alex, for this, this Senate? So the preparations for the Senate's been since 2017. Okay. So since 2017, there has been these, I guess, meetings and, and pre-documents of basically they are pushing for a diaconate women to be de- women to be deacons am i right? correct they want the amazon senate wants deacons to be women um and they also want priests that are married to be they want um priests that priests that are married right they want them to be able to so this is the like, suspected yeah. um intentions however to kind of preface it a little bit uh more so this has been in in uh, in working since 2017, um, where a synod was called for the Amazon people in Brazil, Paraguay, Colombia, uh, Venezuela, these other people, uh, other countries in South America to address the needs of the people in the Amazon. And uh, so it's been in, in preparation since 2017. In October 6th to October 27th, there'll be a synod held in Rome where they will address these things. Um, however, there was the, what's called the Instrumentum Laboris, the document that's the preparatory document for the Pan-Amazonian Synod that was released, and it's gotten a lot of, of, uh, attention, um, from a lot of people, including cardinals and bishops, who are very afraid that what it's pushing and the theology that's behind it is, could be heretical. And specifically, two of the issues that they're afraid that's going to be pushed, although, you know, we pray that it won't be, is the possibility of married clergy starting in the Amazon and then being applied universally to the church. So meaning you, you this notion of synodality, where they're going to use a synod as a kind of uh, uh, a testing ground for something that's going to be implemented worldwide. And likewise, um, ordaining women to first the diaconate and eventually to positions of the clergy, two things which are incompatible with the Catholic faith. And, um, you know, this was just the other day that Cardinal Burke and Bishop Schneider announced a prayer and fasting crusade for the Amazon Synod. This is the newest headline? This uh, came out today, LifeSite News. Cardinal Raymond Burke and Bishop Athanasius Schneider are calling on Catholics to pray and fast to combat the serious theological errors and heresies they identify in the Instrumentum Laboris, the working document for the impending Amazon Synod. 
and they encourage a 40-day crusade of prayer and fasting beginning on September 17th and ending on October 26th, the day before the Synod concludes. Um, this is uh, Cardinal Burke here. The theological errors and heresies implicit and explicit in the instrumentum laboris of the eminent special assembly of the Synod of Bishops for the Pan-Amazon are an alarming manifestation of the confusion, error, and division which beset the church in our day. These are no, you know, small priest in the middle of nowhere. This is a cardinal and and a bishop who have been very outspoken, and there's many others who are, you know, Cardinal Seurat spoken out against it, Cardinal Brandmuller, and others warning that uh, here we go. Cardinal Walter Brandmuller, one of the two remaining dubia cardinals, issued a stiff critique of the instrumental laboris in June, terming it heretical and an apostasy from divine revelation. Brandmuller called on church leadership to reject it with all decisiveness. As long in statement this past July, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, former prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, denounced the instrumentum laboris as well for its radical U-turn in the hermeneutics of Catholic theology and for its false teaching. Cardinal Mueller said that same month the Amazon Synod is a pretext for changing the church. And Burke, Cardinal Burke, had said that the instrumentum laboris is an, quote, apostasy. Mm. So, I mean, we have multiple cardinals who are, (laughs) these are no, you know, small words that they're, they're, be crying against this. Um, and so they're afraid that this is going to be pushed. Uh, there's other things that they point out um, about the Synod. So first of all, they point out, why did a Synod need to be called for the Amazon? So there's 4 million people in the Amazon, these indigenous people, these tribes. Um, is it really necessary to be pushing for these things to convert these people? For 4 million people in the Amazon who are tribal. Um, and this is what has been termed synodality. This idea that you're going to use a synod as a, a testing ground for a change in the church and then implement it uh, worldwide, basically, and say, well, we did it in the Amazon and there wasn't, there wasn't too many bad effects. Maybe we should try married clergy in Germany, which, in fact, the German bishops are also calling a synod, which they are saying is leading to they get to make their own legislation, and guess what's on the bill to be discussed? The role of women in the church, clerical celibacy, among other things, for the German people. And so it's, uh, it's, it's pretty keen that the German bishops are also looking to do similar things here. Um, yeah, do you have any first reactions to that? Well, I have, I, I'm very struck by this because, and I understand we talked a little bit about this in the last podcast, it's coming from the Amazon in in places that we're talking about South America. Yeah, we're saying some of the most Catholic countries in the world. We're talking about Argentina, Brazil, more northern ones. Like, what are some of the like? There's yeah, Ecuador, Colombia. If you look at, just take an example. I mean, professional baseball leagues like the Major League Baseball. They have a lot of those players. You know, they're Catholic. You can just see it right away. You know, wearing crosses and and things like that. Why would it come from an area that is so Catholic? You, you know, does that make sense or am I seeing it backwards? Because if they're if they're so into their faith and Catholic, you wouldn't think that they would come up with something absolutely asinine 
so the, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, can you try to make sense of that? Because you would think that it would come from place like Switzerland or Germany or, or someplace like that where the faith isn't really that, like Switzerland in general, the faith isn't really that instituted there. You don't see, you know, everywhere you go, big Catholic churches. And so why would it come from these countries, Alex? Why do you think? Well, it's, I mean, it's not coming from the tribal people. Right. That's for sure. Um, like you were pointing out, the German bishops and Switzerland and these other places, they seem to have the vested interest in this. Because is this what really the you know people in Argentina and Brazil are pushing for? Now, there may be some. Let's not forget that liberation theology is still rampant, um, which is basically a kind of Christianized Marxism. And uh, along with that, you know, that's that's who got hit the hardest with liberation theology was South America, along with Russian help, uh, by the way. So, yes, there's some like we we mentioned last time, people can look this up, the Bogota document in Colombia, which uh, was a group of meeting of uh, theologians in uh, Bogota, Colombia, where they discuss these things directly. The Instrumentum Laboris has many. Uh, difficult sections in it and that hint at these things. The Bogota document, which is referred to in the working document, the Instrumentum Laboris, as being a pre- another preparatory document, they go at it full right right in the face and they say women should be ordained. And they said clerical celibacy doesn't have to be a necessity. And <laughs> this is a, uh, you know, a group of meeting of uh, liberation theologians. Right Now, who has the vested interest here? Um, those people who who are in the church, let's say, whether they're the German bishops or others, who are wanting to push for a church with married clergy. That's one major one. And um, there are many NGOs and governmental organizations that would would love it if women were ordained. It would be seen as being um, uh, progressive and... Uh, kind of women's rights kind women's of Women's rights, yeah. That's yeah, finally women yeah. get rights yeah, that's in what I was the Catholic thinking. church, right? But you that's know? just not how it works. No, you're destroying the notion of priesthood, which is, I, I think that that ultimately is the, the notion that's being attacked, is what is a priest, and who is a priest, and what does he do? And um, uh, it's, it's an unfortunate thing that now priesthood is so diminished and uh, demeaned, and to the point now where even ha- having women be considered to be on right. this. I mean, you know, people are going to say, well, you know, Pope Francis isn't going to do this and this isn't going to happen. I mean, this isn't out left, left field. We just read from three cardinals who are ultimately really concerned about this and one who's leading a prayer and fasting crusade that this doesn't happen. Insane. So it, it isn't like we're, you know, pulling this out of a hat and saying, well, I think they might do this. Well, we have three credible sources, aka cardinals, that cardinals. are saying, look, these are these are cardinals. Okay, how many cardinals are there in the Catholic Church? Two hundred something? Uh, I think it's like a hundred. Oh, maybe there maybe there is two hundred. Two hundred and some. Okay, yeah, it's been increased. This is insane because if you have and, and cardinals, you know, they're legit, you know, and if you have three cardinals coming out and saying, look, this is basically heresy, that's what it is. It's a distortion of our Catholic theology a misunderstanding of our Catholic theology, a absolute disgrace to the role of priests. 
It's a disgrace to Jesus himself. Jesus instituted the, the man to be the priest, not the woman, you know? And, and granted, women do have a role in the church that, you know, they can become a nun. They can do other things like that, like a nunnery. But it just, it doesn't make sense that that, that should, it should be like that. Because if you have, if you have people like priests or, and, and cardinals, excuse me, that are coming out and saying this stuff, like uh, this level of, of language that they're speaking about this, that's insane because you obviously know that they're, they know what they're talking about and they see, they see this more as a, a potential danger than anything. Look, they're saying everybody, people can be corrupted and this can be pushed and pushed and pushed until the point where it's okay. Why not do it? You know, people become corrupt and these cardinals see it. You know what? I know it, that they see this as a big, big problem. That can be an uprising. This has the potential of basically changing everything. Think about how it would, re- it would reorder the mass. It, it would restructure everything. That's how bad it would be. How could we possibly let something like this? I know I'm going off on a rant right now, but come on. I mean, it's a reasonable rant. It's worthy of and, a rant. And it's just completely insane to me that we would have people even thinking about that. Now, I know the Catholic Church is very wide and diverse, with, has different cultures. Like People come from different cultures around the world, and they celebrate it like that. Like I was in Jamaica. I used to go to Jamaica to do mission work. And the Our Father would take 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, because they're clapping and they're, and they're, you know, it's just their culture. But they don't change the mass. They don't change the structure of the mass. If you want to change the structure of the mass, well, heck, they're, they might do it the way that they're rolling with this new proposition. How many, how many uh, documents have there been so far? like trying to confirm this and then what do you call it pre post or pre documents how how many of their synodal documents yeah so yeah the instrumentum laboris is the main one so that's the the preparatory working document and uh you know the card some of the cardinals have have blasted the document um even my local <laughs> even my local parish priest uh back in san diego my mom just sent me on facebook he was talking about back when it was released uh yeah father anthony said um this is I said back then it's heretical, and now all these other cardinals as well have been have been saying this is just really bad, and um, it's it's yeah it's just sad. It's kind of a gearing up, but so we have the instrumental laboris, which is the main preparatory document. Uh, the other one that we've made reference to before is the Bogota document. Um, I forget the exact name. I think it's a I think the document name. It's only available in Spanish, um, but it's. Uh, the translation is like a uh, looking forward to the Amazon Senate, a preparatory document. And this is a meeting of, I believe it was 17 uh, considered liberation theology theologians, and four of whom are playing an instrumental role on the Synod, uh, actually like participating in it. So four of the people who participated in the document, that's even more forward with what they really want to see in the Amazon. Um, they're going to be participating in this. So just looking at those two documents alone, and then you look at all the names of the people who are going to be there, it's um, you know, it, it's gotten the backlash. I mean, this is what um, Cardinal Brandmuller uh, said in June this year. Uh, he wrote a critique of the Instrumentum Laboris for the Amazon Synod, 
He says, it's truly astonishing that contrary to former assemblies, the upcoming Synod of Bishops on the Amazon will deal exclusively with a region of the earth whose population is just half that of Mexico City, that is to say 4 million. This also raises suspicions regarding the true intentions to be implemented in a hidden way at the October Assembly. So he's saying right off the bat that contrary to previous synods, this is dealing with a very, very small region and amount of people in the church. It, it raises suspicions regarding the true intentions. Why would we call this huge synod for the Amazon region unless there were some people who were trying to push major changes in the church and to start it in the Amazon? Well, you'd think it would be like an entire country, like a massive country with, I don't know, tens of millions of people. Like you said, it's only half the size of Mexico City. Why would we have such a big... Why, why is this so big? You know what I'm saying? Why, why is this? Why are we having these huge meetings here? Continue. So he says, he goes on and says, In principle, we must ask why a synod of bishops should deal with topics at best, as is now the case with three quarters of the content of the Instrumentum Laboris, relate only marginally to the Gospels and the Church. So if you actually read the document, like three-fourths of it is on the natural religion of the people there. It's on the natural and ecological environment. There's this new word, the ecological conversion, who who knows what that means. And all these different, <laughs> like praising the native peoples. That's like three-fourths of the document. Um, clearly, there's an encroaching in- interference here by a synod of bishops into the purely secular affairs of the Brazilian state and society. What do ecology, economy, and politics have to do with the mandate and mission of the church? This is Cardinal Brandmuller speaking here. Very so. good points. So why is like three-fourths of the document about ecological like Irrelevant, stuff? yeah. Yeah, exactly. More importantly, what professional expertise authorizes an ecclesial synod of bishops to express itself on such topics? Should the synod of bishops indeed do this, it would be crossing a boundaries, an act of clerical presumption, which state authorities would have to reject. So on this, he goes on talking about um, furthermore, throughout the Instrumentum Laboris, one finds a very positive assessment of natural religions, including indigenous healing practices, even mythic religious practices and cult forms. In the context of the call for harmony with nature, for example, there's even talk about dialogue with the spirits. I, I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's a lot of the document, if you read the Instrumentum Laboris, is a very positive acceptance of this pagan religions of the people in the Amazon, which is totally contrary to the church. And in fact, as we know in the church, we know that all pagans' religions have ties to demons, and they have ties to demonic influence. Very true, very true. And a kind of generic praise of natural religion and the closeness of these peoples to the earth um, (laughs) bespeaks no need for conversion to the Catholic faith, right? So he, as the good cardinal is doing, he's saying, look, first of all, we're having a synod for a region that doesn't need a synod. <laughs> yeah, straight There's up. four million people. Okay, fine. Second, you made a preparatory document and it got released and you're not even dealing with Christ and his church for three quarters of it. Like three quarters <laughs> of it is praising natural religion and like the pagan peoples and their ecological stuff. Why are you doing that? And he, he's saying that leads to the suspicion that this has more wide widespread effects than you know, we're going to try and convert the native people. Like, what exactly do we need to meet about for these four million people? Right. Preach to them Christ in the church in yeah. conversion. Baptize not, them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not, I mean, that's not 
too hard to like I could tell let's have a synod right now. Yeah. Just do that, okay. Kelly. The Lord, <laughs> go to the, the Lord God bless you and keep you and do not practice false religions, please. Exactly. <laughs> Tear down the temples, tell them to convert to the faith and you know that it's necessary for salvation. Preach to them How Christ. How difficult is it? But no, we need to call a synod in Rome yeah, for I like know. <laughs> the whole month. <laughs> so so when is this hearing in Rome? October 6th. That's when it starts. And October it ends 6th. October 27th. So very soon we're about to... In Rome. Okay, so what happens? How does this How does this uh, meeting act, actually play out? Who's there? What kind of style is it? Who's talking? And how do they incorporate the end result? So that's my first question is, who's going to be there first? Who will be there? Well, I imagine Pope Francis will be there for a little bit of it. Okay. Um, now, regarding all the bishops that will be will be there, I'm not ac- exactly sure. Um, presumably, some Brazilian bishops and other people will be there, and the people of the region. Um, there may be, you know, special invitations to German bishops, other bishops. I'm not exactly sure who all is going to be there. Okay. Um, they'll be having these meetings now. What will be the effect of it? I mean, we'll have to see what comes out of the out of the synodal documents, right? So the preparatory document is leading up to what's going to be the main declaration of the synod for the region. So because this is held in Rome under Pope Francis, and um, it's going to have, you know, full effect for the people in that region, whatever the decisions end up being, as being binding by the church. Uh, obviously, this isn't, it's not a council, it's not an ecumenical council or anything, so it's it's binding for that region. Um Right. But the suspicion is uh, using the Senate as a testing ground and then applying it universally, whatever the changes they want, you know, and, uh, you know, we have multiple cardinals speaking out against it because they're afraid of what could come out of it, which is this women's ordination and or married clergy. Um, Maybe a little bit more of what Brandmuller says. Remember, this is a prominent cardinal here. Cardinal Brand, where is he from? Do you know? Cardinal Brandmuller. I think he's German, is he? Yeah, I don't know. sounds I mean, German. It sounds, it sounds very German. <laughs> and to uh, my understanding, too, was also Cardinal Ratzinger. Is he? Benedict the Sixteenth. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he's spoken out against it. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if Benedict has. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think so. But I mean, this is okay. Continuing with right. what the good Cardinal says, he says it is impossible to conceal that the Synod intends, above all, to help implement two most cherished projects that heretofore have never been implemented, namely the abolition of priestly celibacy and the introduction of a female priesthood, beginning with female deacons. And then he quotes the preparatory document. In any event, it is about, quote, identifying the type of official ministry that can be conferred on women in the church, paragraph 129, article 3. In a similar manner, quote, this is from the instrumental of Boris, Room is now opening for up, sorry, room is now opening up to create new ministries appropriate to this historical moment. It is the right moment to listen to the voice of the Amazon, end quote, in number 43 in the document. It just sounds blasphemous. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, what do we make of this? I don't know. I have no idea either. <laughs> I have no idea either. It's hard this to break a, down. It is hard to break down. Um But here comes the fact. But the fact is omitted here that in the end, John Paul II also stated with highest magisterial authority that it is not in the power of the church to administer the sacrament of holy orders to women. Indeed, in 2,000 years, the church has never administered the sacrament of holy orders to a woman. 
The demand which stands in direct opposition to this fact shows that the word church is now being used purely as a sociological term on the part of the authors of the Instrumentum Laboris, thus implicitly denying the sacramental hierarchical character of the church. That's a mouthful. Big words from yeah. the, the good cardinal, right? Which is church is being redefined in sociological terms, just like our societies are now being pushed um, <laughs> in this egalitarian model that, you know, women can be in highest positions, they can even lead countries. So too, we're going to start destroying the notion of the sacramental hierarchical character of the church in replacing and replace it with a sociological character, right? The church is a society of the faithful gathered together, rather than the Pope, the bishops, the priest, and all the faithful united to Christ and the mystical body of Christ in the Roman Catholic Church. So this redefinition <laughs> allows for, you know, when you redefine what the church is in its hierarchical ordering, then you, you can start to tinker and play with the notion of priesthood, which is really what's being attacked here. What is a priest? What does he do? How does he become in persona Christi? How does he offer the sacrifice? And, and like, what is the nature of a priest? All this is being up for grabs now. Jeez, that's just... So when he said it's it's like forming this society, could you read back that part again where he says it's 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 like kind of denying the structure of the church, the hierarchy, but it's kind of creating a society. Well, what read that again and we'll try to break that down. The demand which stands in direct opposition to this fact shows that the word church, so the fact that the church can never give holy orders to women. Uh, the demand for women's ordination shows that the word church is now being used purely as a sociological term by these writers of the Instrumentum Labor Laboris, thus implicitly denying the sacramental hierarchical character of the church. So he's saying that, look, if you're trying to push women in the priesthood, this official ministry of women in the church, you're attacking the nature of church itself. You're, you're using it in a way that's purely sociological. Just like you can change anything in a society, like right. let's let's just inverse all gender roles and let's do all this stuff um, as we're doing now in our own culture. You're denying the sacramental hierarchical order of the church, and when you attack that, you're attacking everything, you know, because we receive all graces through the church, right? Through this this mediation, you know, they are our mediation to Christ, right? If it wasn't for Peter and the apostles, we wouldn't have this direct access to Christ. We have. Through the Pope, because Jesus um, made Peter this supreme pontiff and all the Pope successive to him, that is our glory as a church, is this direct access of apostolic succession of the Popes all the way back to Christ himself. No other church can claim that. And that is the glory of the church is this hierarchy and this mediation going all the way to Christ, that Christ is king, reigning now in heaven with all the saints— and those who are in charge of the church now are giving us the graces given through from Christ, right? Just look at the apparitions. If you look at Fatima and you look at these other apparitions, Mary always waits for the approval of the bishop because Christ has chosen to work through the church and give graces through the church. All, all things come back to the Pope. He holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven, right? Mm -hmm. We're all going to mm -hmm. see Peter at some point. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to yeah. say... <laughs> You're welcome here. You're, you're, you're not either in here. or you're out. Bro. You're in or you're out, right? <laughs> that was given to Peter, and the Pope is the Pope. And so 
if you start if you start messing with this mediation, you're messing with the whole idea of Christ. You're messing with the priesthood. You're messing with all of it. And Brand Mueller's calling them out. Yeah, that's just a, a big breakdown of really what it is. If you're going to do that, you're going to attack the nature of the church. And that, that's a big thing because, like you said, it's basically attacking every single part of the church. Jesus gave the keys to Peter, kingdom of heaven. Peter was the first pope. And we've seen that apostolic succession, like you said. We can't just allow this. How did this even happen? Like that's what that's what those cardinals are saying is how does this happen? How can this possibly happen? Are we weak? Are we failing in something? Are we not seeing something here? What is going on? How can this small group of people get to this massive point where they actually are going to have a discussion in the Vatican about it? Okay, in the Vatican, the Vatican in Rome. La Città Eterna, the eternal city, okay? This, it's just, it, I don't know, it just, I'm sad. I'm saddened by it because why would we want to attack our church, the nature of the church in this way? I mean, if you're, if you're going to, the, the way that they're doing it, what they're doing is an attack in the deepest part of the church. It's the role of the priest. How can you, the the priest is supposed to be celibate. He's not supposed to, you know, just be married and, and do all these things. And, you know, he's, he's, his focus is on the church and serving the people like Jesus did. You know, we got a sense of that when we went to the Mount of Beatitudes in Israel, you know, we went there and, and we kind of just saw how it was very beautiful and it was very kind of peaceful, but there were people there when, when Jesus was there, he was preaching to these people, you know, all the Beatitudes and, and everything, that's the role that the priest has to preach to us. I mean, don't you just get a great sense of it when you go to Mass and the priest gives a beautiful homily? I mean, whenever I see that, I just love it because it's like the true, it's the true meaning of what the church is. It's really what it is. It's serving the people. How can you, how can you bring these complex situations and circumstances, they're all leading to uh, the, the destruction, I think, of, of a part of the church, which is the mass and, and the role of the priest in it. It's just a very dangerous situation. And I think the best word to describe it is the, the uh, cardinals are in disbelief. And you know how you have those situations where you're just complete disbelief. How could this happen? There's no way that this can possibly happen. It's it's like a, it's like, it's like, you know, I'm a big sp sports fan here. Okay. And game seven, the Stanley cup finals, you know, the blues were in, they were in Boston, man. People are saying, look, Boston's at home. They're, there's no way they're going to lose the last game at home in game seven. Come on. St. Louis goes in there and just dominates them and wins. And you think to yourself, as the game is going on, blues just keep scoring one after the other. And the, and the Boston fans are like, is this really happening? There's like a psychological, I don't know what it is. There's like this psychological mindset where you go, this, this is not possible. It's literally not possible this is happening. Same thing's going on with this whole Amazon Senate. Mm. People are really questioning, okay, is this weakness in the church? Are we weak? What, what are we missing here? Is there a link that we're missing here? Is it, are we just not noticing something or are we just letting this slide to the point where we can have a discussion in the Vatican about this? You know, it's crazy. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's absolutely insane. 
How do we get to this point? How do, how do we get to this point? In the Eternal City in the Vatican, a discussion which seems, according to the testimony of multiple cardinals, Bishop, the good Bishop Athanasius Snyder and others, that this is on the table uh, from the Instrument of Laboris and from the Bogota document and other documents, the uh, German Synod that's coming up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you could look at the same vein in that Pew Research study that we were talking about last podcast that got so much press. 30% of Catholics in the United States believe in the true Eucharistic presence of Christ in the church. Um, and there's going to be a synod in Rome that's talking about women's ordination and uh, clerical celibacy. And uh, this isn't outside the church. This is inside the church, you know. Um, yeah, I think it does give one pause. And, um, you know, I think the response, so first of all, I'm just, we're very glad that we have these cardinals and the bishop making an open reply to this because that, that takes up. a lot of, that takes a lot of guts. That does take To a write lot an article guts. like Brand Mueller is here, a <laughs> critique of this document and saying flat out, um, let's listen to this part of it. This is in conclusion. Uh, in summary, the instrument of laboris burdens the synod of bishops and ultimately the Pope with a serious break with the deposit of faith. Such a break consequently implies the self-destruction of the church or the change of the Corpus Christi Mysticum, the body of the body of Christ mystical, into a secular NGO with an ecological, social, psychological mandate. I, I'm sweating here with Brand Mueller's uh yeah. Brand Mueller is yeah. I mean who else could say this without getting your head chopped off? I mean, this is like this is serious stuff. He's saying it's calling, it's, this it's instrumental laboris burdens the synod of bishops and ultimately the Pope with a serious break with the depositum fidei, with the deposit of faith. Such a break consequently implies the self-destruction of the church or the change of the Corpus Christi mysticum into a secular NGO with an ecological, social, psychological mandate. Um, it's like he's calling out the Pope almost. It's not kind of what it feels like. He is, like, uh, legitimately. Um, so, and this is back in June. I mean, this is, we're, we're in September. We're in September 12th when we're recording this. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll look back after the Synod, and um, hopefully nothing will, will happen will this be, substantial. We'll still be podcasting. We'll still be podcasting. So we're we're going to sure. have a lot to talk about when over, um, this is over. Either it approves or it doesn't, or I'm not really sure how that works. We will definitely be talking about this a lot more. And, you know, I was thinking, too, is is the Pope under pressure, Alex? You think he's under a lot of pressure about this? Yes. Okay, so how do we kind of break that down? What kind of pressure is he under and by whom? It's, it's tough to say. Um, obviously, he's under pressure by everybody. And there's no one who can judge him on earth. He can only be judged by Christ. He can only answer alone to Christ. He is our Pope, and full submission and obedience is due to him in, in all matters, except in those wherein it's directly uh, directly sin or contrary to the faith. And um, he is the supreme pontiff between God and man in, in this current time. And so, of course, he's under pressure from multiple people. And um, But, however, he has full and immediate ordinary authority over the universal church. And if he wanted to tomorrow, he could 
completely in this Amazon Synod and released a document completely condemning all these things. It is within his power, is within his pontifical right as part of his office to be able to do such a thing. And it's also within his office to allow it to continue but make a document completely outlawing any such considerations. Um, that he's not doing it, only Christ can judge him. And um, But it's the role of us as people of the church to, and as the cardinals are doing, to call him out. Um, you know, the, the precedent set by Paul when Peter was acting like a Jew among the Jews and acting like uh, a non-Jew among the Gentiles um, and not eating with Gentiles when he was around Jews. Paul, he said in Galatians, Paul said, I resisted Peter to his face. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, in this document by Brand Mueller and others, they're trying to resist Peter to his face. This does not mean a lack of obedience. When the Pope speaks, when Rome speaks, the world is to be silent. And Rome hasn't spoken yet. And so Holy Mother Church and her, uh, her princes, the cardinals, are now speaking to His Holiness, Pope Francis, and writing these things to, uh, to make sure this doesn't happen. And um, us as laity, being informed about these things, I think, is, is good and beneficial. It should only increase our prayers. And uh, just as right. the good bishop and, and uh, Cardinal Burke have told us to do, is to pray and to fast that these things don't come about. Um, that's We have to trust it into Christ's hands. Christ knows what he's doing with the church, and um, he's the one who judges the Pope and the hierarchy. We as laity are to be informed about this and to, and to give all our prayers, uh, because that's the most effective thing. It's more in fact effective than any protest or anything else is staying close to the sacred heart of Jesus and staying close to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and offering a rosary, pray the rosary, right? Um, in, in all of these things, it's, it can, um, you know, when you're, when you're dealing in difficult times, it can be the, um, to, to start to have a lack of piety for the office of, the Pope or to lose faith in your individual Bishop or to whatever else, um, or to start bad talking them or something like that. That is not correct. <laughs> you right. should never, you know, uh, you know, St. Paul talks about he, in his letter to Timothy that he's going to receive a harsher judgment because he's become a Bishop and because he, or because he's been set in this role in the church, he's going to be not only accounted for his personal sins, but the things he did or did not do in his office. And so it's for no man to judge the Pope, you know. Um, there was a saying in France that um, there was this man who, this is back in the Middle Ages, where he slapped the Pope and he, <laughs> he got the death penalty for it. <laughs> and so the, the phrase became, he who strikes the Pope dies, <laughs> right? Now, in uh, of course, Benito Mussolini, when he... When oh. he uh, up, uh, up my alley, man. That's that's dangerous stuff. Yeah, he, when he was saying it, and you know the Pope's in the Vatican resisting Mussolini and stuff. He said, "He who strikes the Pope, the Pope shall die." <laughs> <laughs> well, those Italians, they really have good good wording. Yeah, right? and so as Catholics, Pope Francis is my Pope, and I I give him obedient submission, and but I do pray that he will come out and reject these claims, and um. Yeah, in, in Christ's ruling. But uh, we do need to be aware of this because this is something that uh, 
you know, high-ranking officials in the church are saying this is a possibility and we need to be prepared as as laity to uh, uh, speak out, you know, in whatever role, and then focus our prayers towards it, pray and fast. How many people around the world, the world do you think know about this? I don't know. I don't know how I how it's being covered in the U.S. Um, you think it's getting as kind much of the coverage? mainstream Catholic media is kind of aware of it, but uh, not pushing it as as much as more um, what would be considered like traditional Catholic media. It's kind of seen as being um, a fear mongering or something else. Um, it, it's difficult because it's difficult because there are people. Look. We have to admit there are people in the church who want this to happen. Just that's just the way it women is. ordination, and they want this other stuff. And unfortunately, they're not believing the the true faith, which retains clerical celibacy as something as a um, as a part of the priesthood that is so intimately related to what a priest is and his sacrifice of the mass and the sacrifice of the mass to be celibate. And this idea that women could be ordained is so foreign to the notion of sacrifice and to priesthood and so theologically wrongheaded. Um, it has to be rejected. And so, but there are people who are, you know, pushing this under, under the table and waiting till the Senate gets their stuff out. Because what would be the ideal for people who want to push this? They want no coverage of this, so nobody really knows about it. Right. They implement it quietly in the Amazon. They do it for a few years and then they release to the world that, you know, now we think now, according to the times of our, the, you know, is the needs of our age that uh, priests should be married, you know, and then you just say, well, we're going to now try it now that it works so well in the Amazon. We're going to try it in Germany. The German bishops, some of the German bishops would love nothing more. Right. And you try it in this particular diocese and then this particular diocese and, and let it uh, grow quietly. Yeah. Yeah. Let it grow quietly. And uh, yeah. And the women ordination, a lot of. A lot of NGOs, powerful companies, powerful people, you know, you, you start tinkering with that stuff and, um, yeah, you can bring the church to its knees. You know, another thing I was thinking was, if this is a direct violation against the church and its teaching, why would the Pope even consider it? Deep waters, Kellen Lee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what Look, I'm thinking. That's, that's kind of where we have to leave it is like, we leave it up to the judgment of Christ. Okay. And but we pray for the Pope. You should pray for the Pope every day. Do it with your rosary uh, for the intentions of the Pope, because um, he needs the prayers. And uh, look, us as laity to be informed on it is fine. To obsess about it is not fine. And right. also, good point. This um, it's up to the hierarchy. Like they're the ones whom Christ has put in positions where they have. And we praise God for Brandmuller and Burke and these other cardinals. Bishop Schneider for speaking out so vehemently against it. Um, yeah, but we have to we have to trust Christ. We have to pray about. It. So, um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of, you know, if we go into women's ordination in general, um, yeah, I mean this this isn't brand new for not it's brand new for the church and it will never be, even if they say we're going to ordain women, it never actually happens. I. <sighs> If there's a mass happen. celebrated by a woman, that's not a mass. No, not no way. It's as heretical as you can get. You know, the uh, the Anglicans and others have ordained women. Where's that gotten them? 
<laughs> nowhere. I mean, nowhere. It, I mean, they still don't have a true sacrifice. It doesn't work. They, yeah. Uh, they don't have the true Eucharist. So they don't have Christ there. And um, yeah, I remember the first time I was in England and I saw a, a woman with a collar on and I was just like, what is going on? And, and then I realized really? she was Anglican. You yeah. saw a woman with... Oh, yeah, wow. she was wearing a, uh, a purple uh, shirt with a Roman collar on it. And uh-huh. I was like, what is this? Anyways, so... Yeah, it's, 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 um, yeah. And I, I think this is part of a larger, the larger issue that, you know, we as a country, even in general are having with, um, the role of women in society as well. And, uh, exactly what does that look like in the family? It comes back to the family as well, because you start messing with the priestly hierarchy. I mean, we've, we've already started messing with the natural hierarchy of a family, the uh, ecclesia domestica, the domestic church. In domestic churches, each family has its particular roles as father and as mother and what it means to be man and woman. And, um, you know, the, what is supposed to be the kind of roadmap of, or the, the perfect example of what it means to be husband and wife, father and mother, Christ and the church, Right. Because Christ gives himself completely to the church and the church receives his body and his benefits. And the union between Christ and his church is unbreakable for all time into eternity. And the priests and the hierarchy and the Pope, they are the image of the of Christ to the church, giving his body and his blood to the church and offering that to the Father for the glorification of the, the Most Holy Trinity. The Mass is for the glory of the Most Holy Trinity, offering Christ to the Father. It's Christ offering himself to the Father right. through the through the ministry of the priest, through the mediation of the priest. And so what's what's happened is the Father is supposed to be the, you could say, the, the leader in blessing, the leader in um, giving good things to his children, um, just as God our Heavenly Father is. And the mother nurtures the children, uh, gives life to them, nurtures that growth and raises them as a mother can. And the family has really been under attack in our modern age. Um, People are having less and less children. Contraception has entered. Abortion has entered in striking numbers. And societally, the family has been under attack. And in the church as well, the family has been under attack. Uh, After Vatican II, the amount of annulments has just skyrocketed. And uh, the amount of Catholics divorcing at the same rate as non-Catholics. I mean, that's just a travesty. And, and when you're divorcing in that way, and when they're not having children and they're contracepting as, you know, these are these are numbers that people don't talk about either. We, you know, the Pew Research one is just recent about the Eucharist. That's just striking. But the fact that Catholics divorce and remarry at the same rate as others. Um, that's insane. That's, that's insane. That they contracept as, at the same rate. That they abort almost at the same rate as, as uh, non-Catholics. Um, the destruction of the family is a part of this because what it means to be a Catholic family remaining close to Christ and the hierarchical ordering of the family as well, the man is the leadership and the woman as primary in the mode of love and nurturing for the family, that's been under attack as well. And so now you're going to have that same attack on the most holy priesthood. It's just a, it's a, it's a follow-up from this d- destruction of the family. I mean, then you apply that to the family of the church where the the father, the priest, why do we call him father? He's, he is father. We are the church. We are wedded to our individual priest as well as, as part of this mystical union of Christ and the church. The priest is, is uh, enacting in persona Christi is united to us as the church. 
Um, and he says, this is my body and this is my blood, not this is Christ's blood or this is Christ's body. He is acting in persona Christi. You put a woman up there, man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How is that going to destroy that? How is it going to affect the family as well? Terrible. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, but it's true. It just looked terrible. Yeah, exactly. Man, can you imagine having square room investments with um, <laughs> Intrevoi Aldo Tari Day? Um, God damn, Quili Tifa got Uven to Ma'am. Having a woman say that. and Look, oh, we're, we're so sexist, Kellen. And, you know? <laughs> well, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, that but... looks bad. Right? <laughs> hey, you know what? No. Looks, but, but go ahead. you know, but it, it's true. It, it's it's it would not be a good image to portray. Um, it would be a false. Image. It would be a false image. Um, what are we saying about the nature of man and woman? What are we saying about the nature of Christ? Look, it goes. Look, the faith is one of those things, man. You can't just start messing with one part and think everything else is just going to be fine, right? You just we start destroying the notion of the family. It affects everything, man. You start affecting what the nature of the priesthood is. It's going to change our relation to everything. Then you have to ask the question, well, could could God have become woman? The incarnation in woman instead of man. And um, no, he could not. No, he came as a man. Straight up, no. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> and because, why? Because, because God's sexist, that's why. That's ultimately, the feminist claim gets ultimately to that. If you follow this... this it's because God and, is and sexist. Look, look people, uh, you know, feminism is like... <clears throat> trying to make women like men and it's 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 derogating women and what what it means to be a woman but you're ultimately christ came to give his body for the world and to preach and to offer the sacrifice to the father and this mediation and that is the task of man and woman's glory is in mary because she is the perfect disciple of our lord who was and is her son and a perfect disciple and completely conceived without sin, and now crowned as queen of heaven and earth. You know, who once was Mary in, you know, in Galilee, the middle of nowhere. We've been to Galilee. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. <laughs> There's it's a this big, little, small uh, little, little pond, and then... then uh, Think about that. Go around to Capernaum. But... A, a, woman, a woman from Nazareth, the middle of freaking nowhere and still is pretty much the middle of nowhere mary is from now, nazareth right or where was I she believe so yeah, i think yeah. she was from nazareth yeah 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 or, um maybe Jerusalem. i'm not exactly <laughs> sure uh <laughs> where was mary born we'll, we're about to find out but Anyways, um regardless she came from basically nothing and she is queen of heaven and earth just look at fatima man Fifty thousand people saw her In... mini, you know her vision of the the sun dancing and um Absolutely crazy, man. Her role is exactly. vital. Well, Kellen, obviously, if they're not <laughs> priests, then they can't be true women, you know, because that's what it means to be truly powerful is to have a, you know, say mass and these type of things. It's like, do you not know that Mary is queen of heaven and earth? <laughs> Has that escaped you? Are you not entertained? <laughs> Are you not, you know, do you not see that, that that glory and to be a perfect image of Mary and to be a perfect image of the church as a woman in, in the fullness. She's the perfect um, representation of the power of women and, and their role in society. I mean, think about, think about how powerful Mary is. I mean, you know, cause you like usually see statues of her just stepping on Satan with her foot. Okay. She's a weapon. She's a real weapon against evil. Just as Jesus was a weapon against evil, you know, 
Mary was, you know, that was her role. To She was a real mother towards Jesus. She wasn't just this kind of, you know, we see just a regular mother and her child. She had a real, real tough task with Jesus. I mean, that's not easy. I mean, but, you know, seeing Mary, Mary as this, we don't want to see Mary as this reduced role. We want to see Mary as this powerful, um, this powerful image that we have that we can carry with us throughout our lives, this powerful figure and a, a real figure, not just, you know, in our, in our minds, but just the rosary, you know, every time we, every time we, you know, say the rosary, we are defeating Satan. And think about how much power that that will have. And that's why we need to keep praying, um, you know, the rosary for the Senate to, you know, that whole whole hearing with that. But it's really important that we keep prayer going because that one bishop said, you know, who was the, uh, the not the, the cardinal that talked about fasting and doing little things in our lives that will, you know, hopefully reverse this trend of, of of the of the Senate of what's going on, so very important, and we have to keep praying. But I think we need to re- we still need to remember that Mary was she's very powerful. A lot of the times we forget, you know, the role of Mary. I mean, she's she's just a she's a vital weapon against evil. And well, I think you could use her own words. She says, "What <laughs> the angel Gabriel who stands before the throne of God comes to her and says, Hail Mary.'" You know, he says, um, hail. Yeah, exactly. He hails her. Hail Mary. She's full of grace. The Lord is with you. Um, that's an angel hailing a woman from yeah. Nazareth, from the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And the angel says, hail, full of grace. Right? This is an angel that stands before the throne of God. And the angels are in a constant beatific vision with God. Blessed they are, are so you. high. Blessed are you among women. That's what Elizabeth says, right? So, and then what does Mary say? Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. Right? Where is Mary's power found? Is it in giving commands and like saying mass? God forbid. It's in behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. She fully receives the word of God and fully and gives life to it. In Christ, she, uh, you know, the image of Mary as the Ark of the Covenant, that she fully contains Christ. And um, she says, uh, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. Then she says, from henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. That is power. All generations will call me blessed. And... uh, Oh, well, women should be priests. Otherwise, they can't have true power. There's the the distortion. There's the the distortion. And it's insane. They don't get it. They don't understand the role of women. They don't understand the role of Mary. It's all all messed up. (laughs) Here's, um, you know, a little bit. Yeah, and like you were saying, even from Genesis 3, we have the promise to Eve that uh, eventually one will come from her progeny that will crush the head of Satan, right? And so Mary was specifically chosen to crush the head of Satan. And uh, if you look at the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, who's under his foot or her foot, 
is a little tiny serpent. That's what Satan is compared to Mary. She crushes <laughs> his head. And this is according to Father Ripiger, who is, is an exorcist in, in Denver. Uh, mm. Fantastic man. Wow. Um, but have you, have you met him? No, I didn't get to meet him while oh, I was wow. in Denver. Uh, although imagine, Father Nick Larkins knows him pretty well. You imagine actually. meeting an exorcist, man. Wow. He, he's a really awesome guy. But he said um, the majority of the exorcisms that actually he has to perform are on women. And one of the things he said is um, that the fathers of the church and others have pointed out the devil's hatred for women as being one of the reasons why witchcraft and these other things end up happening in possession. And... Uh, that women can be violated in these other things as, as inviting in de- demonic influence in these other things. But <laughs> you want to talk about a women, woman's unique mediation with Mary for the universal church in being true disciples of Christ and receiving the word of God and bringing forth life. And then you try and pervert that and say, well, you need to wear the pants. And unless you're, unless you act like a man, then you're no longer powerful from a Catholic perspective. That's utter nonsense. And, um, uh, yeah, Mary shows, Mary's the shining example. And this is, this is why God in his providence has, you know, become man in Jesus Christ and has raised Mary as queen of heaven and earth. Um, that's who we should be looking for, for what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And any consideration of that, that doesn't, that doesn't consider Christ or doesn't consider Mary, you're ultimately going to have a faulty conclusion. Um, if you look purely naturally, you're going to conclude like power is in the hands of the man and this evil patriarchy. And, you know, we need to destroy these hierarchical oppressions of women and all these other things, which is all the nonsense that's being pressed in our modern world. And um, because we in the church and uh, in the hierarchy haven't been so vocal about what are really the roles of man and woman, there's this diabolical confusion. And the devil hates women, and he wants to see their demise, as he wants to see everyone's demise. And, um, yeah, that's the reason why praying the rosary is such an important weapon. Release the power of, of Mary. You know, we it's just look to the potential that's just waiting there. It's just there. It's, it's we, we can do it if we just pray. You know, it's right there in our hands. And a lot of times we just don't see it. We don't use it. Because... So, yeah, keeping your eyes on Christ and Mary and you'll and um staying close to the heart of the church. And then to have this nonsense of women's ordination, right? So that's why we should we should pray all the more. Um yeah, and then yeah, regaining that in our in our prayer life and um yeah, the priesthood, the priesthood, you know, he who offers sacrifice. Uh we gotta reclaim that notion as well. Uh I did a podcast earlier with our good friend Zach Hamar. And we spoke about, um, so you were speaking earlier about how did we get to this point, <laughs> right? And, and none of these, this, yeah, this disbelief at where we've come. And um, there are, there are numerous um, claims of like, how did we get to this point? Um, and one of them is the restructuring of the liturgy. That's one of them. And what it means to be a priest, ultimately. Uh, that we've we've reached this point. I remember in the last podcast we talked about the Council of Trent. For all our listeners out there, the, the the Mass is a sacrifice. It is the sacrifice of Calvary. The only difference is this is celebrated in an unbloody manner, and it was celebrated once on Calvary in a bloody manner. And that the ultimate end of the Mass is the glorification of the Trinity through the sacrifice of Christ. 
The secondary end, the uh, what is it? The immediate end, is the um, propitiatory sacrifice. So it's offered on behalf of the sins of mankind, and um, and so that's what the mass is, and it includes in it the real presence of Christ. It includes in it also uh, the unique mediation of the priest, and um, and uh, ultimately that's that's the nature of the mass, and so. Unfortunately, when we when you start messing with what the idea of the priest is, and you call him just a minister of the word, or he's a presider, or he's, he's, he's these other things, then you lose a notion of sacrifice in this hierarchical mediation, and you're like, well, the priest, you know, consecrates the host. That's the only difference between him and everybody else, because we've allowed Eucharistic ministers, uh, which extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, which existed by, uh, I believe by indult. I don't think there was any official document that came out that said, we really like this. It was basically like, oh, your country wants to do it? Go ahead. So, you know, and the majority of people who are or extraordinary ministers are women <laughs> that are touching the Eucharist. Um, the facing the people, all these other liturgical changes, it kind of lends itself to, well, what is the you know, why do we need a priest? Why can't women do, why can't women do what priests do? Um, so, I mean, we, we discussed in our podcast, the Ottaviani intervention, which was a document put out in 1969 by two cardinals, Cardinal Bocci and Cardinal Ottaviani. Uh, it's called a short or sorry, a brief critical study of the new missile. Right. And if you look at the history of the church, um, there's only one real, widespread change of the liturgy, which was in 1969 by Pope Paul VI, under Pope Paul VI, which is the Mass we celebrate today. The uh, traditional Roman rite of the Catholic Church was solidified in the Council of Trent, and even before that it had existed basically in its same form all the way back to Gregory the Great, and even before to Peter himself. And, uh, you know, what ended up coming out of the new Mass is a... um, uh, very clearly a favoritism of the laity and the role of the laity in the mass and a, a lessening of this uh, position of the priest. So if you look at the way that the Roman rite was always done, the mass is always facing towards God, right? The whole, the whole movement of the liturgy was towards God. Um, and ultimately the mass is for God. It's offering Christ to the Trinity. And so the mass isn't properly for us. Um, just as the first canon of uh, the 22nd uh, session of Trent says, if anyone says that in the mass, a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God or that to be offered is nothing else, but that Christ has given us to eat, let him be anathema. Council of Trent, session 22, canon one. Um, so the mass isn't just us calling Christ into the bread and now, oh, heck yeah, now we have Christ given us to eat, right? The mass is a true and proper sacrifice to the Holy Trinity. And um, when we switch that around and it's facing the people, people get confused about what the proper end of Mass is. Um, if you look at uh, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, their technical term is extraordinary, which last time I checked means not usual. <laughs> right? <laughs> if it's ordinary, then they're the, the ordinary ministers of Holy Communion are the priests. However, right. in many parishes here in the United States and elsewhere, it's almost become the ordinary minister is the laity predominantly women. Okay. And um, so in that, before uh, the changes of the liturgy, the priest was the only one who was to touch the Eucharist. All communion was taken on the tongue, kneeling. And the priest was the only one because he had consecrated hands. 
His hands are consecrated to give you the Eucharist. And so now if everybody can touch Christ, you know, why do you need sacred hands, right? If I can touch Christ and you can touch Christ and we can all touch Christ in the Eucharist, well, what's not the sacred priest, about that? What's I mean, sacred about that? that? Yeah. Um, yeah, you have the notion of concelebration. You have uh, women being lectors or altar girls and, uh, right, and altar servers ultimately is a progression unto the altar. It actually, acolyte is, used to be a, a minor order. The minor orders were abolished in, I believe, 1969 as well uh, by Paul VI. They were changed for ministries. But what it was before is that there was a progression unto the altar. So you began as a lector or, sorry, you began as a porter. You opened the door for people. Okay. Fair <laughs> that enough. was a minor order was opening and shutting the church, you know. And then you have lector, somebody reads, acolyte, exorcist was even one of them. Wow. Um, but especially as acolyte, you were serving the priest at mass and you wore holy vestments. You didn't wear like the vestments of that a priest wears, but you were serving at the altar. And um, and so for that reason, you know, it was only men, obviously, because it was also a preparation of people for the priesthood. Because it's like you're, it's not like all of a sudden, like, bam, you're a priest, here you go, offer the mass. It was like you were working up towards it. And um, also in the new mass, we, a lot of places have altar girls. Although some people are starting to be like, do we need altar girls, right? Isn't this a progression onto the, onto the altar? So, I mean, before, um, you know, no one was allowed into the sanctuary except for the priests and those who have been duly appointed in the minor orders. Okay. So this, the notion between the sanctuary and where the people are is, is kind of blurred now. Um, remember they used to have like communion rails and it was gated. You right. couldn't just That's walk right. into They still it. have those, right? In, in yeah. certain places. Yeah. And the idea that you could, you know, walk up into that holy space of the sacristy, or sorry, not the sacristy, the sanctuary. Um, there was this distinction, right? We're the laity, we're out here in the world still. The sanctuary is like you're entering into this heavenly reality. Well, we started reshaping the churches. Now the churches are this circular monstrosity. <laughs> I mean, this circular idea instead of the cross idea, or like, here's the sanctuary. It's demarcated. Women lectors, women altar servers, women doing extraordinary uh, ministers of Holy Communion. What's left? Consecration. That's all that's left. So, I mean, if you're, if you're asking like, okay, well, how do we get to this point where we're even considering it? It's like, well, uh, if there's a case to be made that these liturgical changes uh, post-conciliar after Vatican II uh, by Paul VI to allow women into positions where they never were before in the sacred liturgy, holding communion, administering communion, entering into the sanctuary, becoming lectors, becoming altar girls, all these type of things. That plays a role in forming the consciousness of the peoples, forming the consciousness of bishops and cardinals and other people to say, well, you know, what, what is the difference? If the priest is not true priest offering sacrifice and merely calling Christ into bread and, you know, offering all these things, you know, what would be such a big deal? Let them offer the, the mass, you know, let them share at the table of the Lord and consecrate. So, so that's kind of the, <laughs> the, it's like a lackluster kind of lazy mentality. It's yeah. kind of like a slow degradation of kind of, you know, what is the role of the priest anyways? I mean, yeah. but yeah, so I was just thinking. So now he's just you know, pastor. Now he's just minister, right. but he's not really priest. This is, this is the reason why we, you know, priests are priests and we're, we don't call him pastor, you know, like the Protestants do. He's a priest. 
He may be a pastor of a parish, but that's his secondary role. His first role is to offer the sacrifice and to be a unique mediator just as Christ is. Like what, what a glory to mankind that Christ would institute the priesthood, the holy priesthood. What, what an absolute glory that we, that we could take a man from being in the world and then thrust him onto the life of Christ, into living, living the life of Christ on the earth. Clerical celibacy being one of those things. Right. Yeah. Last time I checked, Christ wasn't married. <laughs> Last time I checked, he wasn't married. Right. And so you're messing again. You're messing with the nature of Christ because the, the priest is fully conformed to the image of Christ. He, he is Christ, you know? And in the old rite, when you greeted a priest, you kissed his hand. Right. Right? When you met a priest the first time, you kissed his hand. Why Why? why do you do that? Because he gives you Christ. His hands have been consecrated to touch Christ. You know? Do we do that now? No, not really. There was a, um, I was at a fraternity parish in um, in San Diego. And um, this brand new priest celebrated this beautiful, solemn high mass. Uh, young priest and um, celebrate a beautiful high mass. And afterwards, he was, uh, uh, he, he was giving his uh, priestly blessing individually because in the first year, I believe, after you're ordained, you can give a special blessing with a plenary indulgence, I believe, attached. Oh, wow. And um, so everyone was kneeling at the communion rails. And when he came up, he put his hands on your head and he prayed the prayer in Latin, made the sign of the cross over you. And then he gave you his hands to kiss. You kissed his hands. Wow. Right? Because that's amazing. That's the reason he puts his hands on you because his hands have been consecrated by who? By who? The bishop. And ultimately going all the way back to Christ himself. And so this unique mediation of this priest that he's now being called to this state that's beyond us, right? That is, he's now living an eschatological reality. He's living He's living a Christological life now. And um, that's the proper notion of mediation. That's the proper notion of hierarchy, which people, you know, people who hate the church want to destroy. Satan wants to destroy it as well. Because if you have everyone running around like, you know, the chickens with your heads cut off, <laughs> how better, you know, the, the uh, divide and conquer notion, right? If you destroy hierarchy, you destroy this mediation, if we lose the Pope and we lose all the bishops, then we've lost our connection to Christ. Because they are living mediators going all the way back to Christ himself. We need them. We need the hierarchy. That's the reason why Protestantism doesn't work. That's why it always yep. disintegrates because no matter how much is built upon it, they don't have that mediation. They don't ultimately have this mediation of Christ. And that's why they always have to refer back to Calvary as it was back then. We're a Calvary people. It's Calvary today at your mass in your local parish because in union with the Pope, we go all the way back to Christ. That is Calvary. Protestants don't have that. That's why there's all this division within them and they decay. The proper notion of hierarchy is that which orders and that which brings together and that which ultimately builds up the body of Christ. So that has to be retained. Priesthood has to be glorified once more. And it's not, oh, we're being clerical. Oh, you're saying the priest has so much roles and stuff. Like, give me a break. Are yeah. you going to complain about how much role Christ had? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. man, Christ had too much authority, <laughs> dude. Oh, come on. Give me a break. Right? Oh, Christ shouldn't have overturned the, you know, the the tables of the money changers and, and been so forceful and called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. <laughs> you hypocrites. Your father is the devil who is a father of lies. That's true. our meek and blessed Lord. Yep. Be as as uh, wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Yep. 
And, uh, oh, well, you're being clerical. You're saying that they have to be hierarchical and you have to kiss their hands and all that stuff. Like, it's just yeah. they don't understand. It's just a well, there's, misfortunate. There's, yeah, I mean, the difficult part is you can look this up on, on YouTube and other places. I almost kind of hesitate to say this. Pope Francis, there's video of him, people, these uh, visitors of the papal audience who wanted to kiss his ring, kiss his hands. He just removes his hands and wouldn't let him kiss it. You Ooh. can look up the video. And why was that? Only Christ can judge him. Look, <laughs> all right. Uh, and once again, he is our Pope and uh, he is leading the church. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's really, it's really kind of sad because people are coming up and they want to kiss his hand. They want to kiss his ring. I mean, from that hand, from his hands, we receive all the graces, you know, because it's through the Pope that Christ has chosen to work the kingdom of heaven, uh, keys of the kingdom of heaven, the gates of hell not prevailing against us. It's led by the vicar of Christ on earth. And so, yeah, that it's not clerical. It's not clericalism, and it's not saying, "Oh, well, the you know the the clergy has too much power." It's, it's it's nonsense to say they have too much power with this notion of hierarchy when they're using their power unjustly. You know, they're trying to gain higher office so they can be more important and stuff. Obviously, that's one thing, but um, having visible signs of the people kissing the hands of the priest or kissing the ring of the pope, or you know, having the priest alone touch the Eucharist. None of this stuff is demeaning to the laity. It's not demeaning to them. Right. In fact, it just glorifies because people want to have that visible sign of Christ. Well, it's an important part. That's what people see at the Mass. They want to be immersed with it. And that's the role that the priest does. He acts as Christ. And um, like you said, every Mass, we celebrate Calvary. And, you know, we are we celebrate that that event. And um, like you said, in, in a bloody manner, not a bloody manner. But you know, Alex, I was thinking, I was thinking about um, Pope Francis was born in Argentina, right? Yes. Do you? So he's the first pope ever born in the Western Hemisphere, I believe. I think. I think is he's that the, right? Yeah, yeah he's the first. Right, yeah. Now I don't want to make any judgments here, but do you think that there's because you know Argentina is in South America, like you know Amazon kind of area? Do you think that has that has anything to do with it? kind of maybe a sympathy for this region for some sort of things that he's actually from there? Or do you think that that's just completely irrelevant? I mean, maybe, yeah, I mean, it's closer to home, so it may be more on his mind. Uh, I think I go back to what Brand Mueller said, where he said, do we really need a, a, a synod held in Rome for these 4 million, you know, tribal indigenous people in Brazil? Like, do we need to spend three-fourths of a, of a document talking about eco ecological conversion and stuff? And the praising of the natural religions of the the pagans, I, I don't know. In in my opinion, it's it's kind of silly, but um, that is closer to home. Yeah, I mean that that could be one of the reasons. Argentina region. Well, it's interesting to think. Or sorry, that's in most of it's Brazil. Yeah, it's Brazil. It's the Amazon. Yeah. Brazil. Yeah. So, yeah, it leaves us in a in a difficult place, but, um, yeah, with with the mass it's we also have to look at like what the nature of a priest is that's that has to be a primary focus um what is the nature of a priest what is the nature of the mass how does it not work that women's ordination and these other things uh just unfit yeah it just it it doesn't make sense to me i don't think it makes sense to a lot of people and we have to keep praying that this that this will not you know develop into anything further 
And it is a shock, like I said. How could this happen? You know, there's just a lot of natural factors that go into that. Just, you know, how could we, you know, how could we get this far? You know, it's unfortunate, but there's nothing we can't like. We can do something about it. We can pray and everything, but we have to forget the fact that this is not going to happen because it's happening. So now, what do you do? Well, you keep praying. You keep trying to, you know, do anything you can to reverse this trend and. Obviously, we can't just go to Rome and go and do that. You know, we live thousands of miles away, but we can pray. And that that's one of the biggest weapons against evil is, is you know, invoking Mary, Jesus, asking them for their protection over Rome, for, for the protection of the world, for the protection of, of all the people. And I think that's very important um, because I, I'm not sure... And I'm guilty of this too. I don't think we pray enough. I'm obviously guilty of that. I think we're all guilty of that. Um, and I think the power of prayer is so, is amazing. Because mm. we see wondrous miracles happen just because of prayer. Um, I had a, a friend who who passed away and uh, he they were doing his funeral mass. and um, And during the mass, the priest, while he was celebrating, like, uh, the, well, at the funeral, he said he had this vision in the middle of the funeral. And at the very end of the funeral, he went down and back to his seat. And he said, everybody, can I please have your attention for a second? Now, this man that died was a friend of, uh, I didn't, I didn't know him like too well, but he was a close friend, a family friend, um, of of our family and he suffered like with depression his whole life just um he suffered with he suffered with with depression his entire life and i was just thinking to myself you know at this this it was it was a miracle that happened something very very beautiful and and i was just thinking to myself at this at this point you know they were at the funeral and he sees the vision he sees a vision of the man, uh, of the boy, and his name is Jeremy. And Jeremy's standing in front of Jesus, and Jesus said, there is no more pain. There is no more pain. Jesus said that. And I was just thinking to myself, that's prayer right there, man. Like, if you if you have a priest at a funeral see a, a vision of the man that was tormented his entire life by depression, saying that Jesus says to him, there is no more pain. That's insane. That is so beautiful. That changes lives. Mm. I don't think we understand how much prayer changes lives. Because we can change anybody's life, anybody's life at any moment by the most simple act. And to see that happen, to address an entire crowd of saying what he just saw, it's a life changer. Yeah. That's how powerful prayer is. And it's just an amazing thing. I mean, do you have any miracle stories, Alex, about prayer? <laughs> I mean, it's it's worth telling because yeah. people want to hear this stuff. No, and, it, and, you know, prayer especially, but, you know, the role of a priest as well in a person's life. I mean, I right. have, you know, particular times in my life where maybe a priest has said something in the confessional or, um, you know, this said, a, said the mass a certain way, you know, in a reverential way. Like, I still have images of, you know, a, a priest... Um, so reverently offering the Eucharist 
and, and offering the mass. And the effect that that has on the laity should not be diminished or undermined, like, or, or neglected. That has such an effect because they're the father, you know, they are this mediator and the ability that they have to, to shape the minds of the faithful and to affect them is unlike anything else. And it, there's such a glory to the priesthood. And, um, the glory of it is not being a good administrator. The glory of it is not running a good parish council or having a good fish fry during Lent, right? <laughs> That's not the glory of the priesthood. The glory of the priesthood is the mass and, um, and everything that surrounds it in doing baptisms, in, in hearing confessions, even when it's difficult, in um, rebuking the sinner and encouraging the faithful, in leading to piety. And I mean, what a glory that God has given to the church is this priesthood, you know, and, and what a glory, you know, all things in Christ, what a glory it is to be a father of a family, to be a husband in, in a sacramental union with, in sacramental marriage. It's just a, um, in Christ, all those things become glorified uh, or the glory of a consecrated virgin in the church, um, it, nuns, all these things, you know, <laughs> and the priest too, like, Man, what a unique mediation. I, I have so many memories of, you know, when Mass is said reverently like that. That sticks with you. That sticks with you for a long time. You where see you, you it. Just re- you just remember it because they are leading you in the faith. They are actively leading you in the faith. And no amount of, you know, all these different side things that a priest does can can um, can amount to just that one, that one act of the Mass. Like, their love for the Mass is going to... F- that's going to feed the faithful, like their love for the mass. That's going to be felt by everybody, right? When you tell that a, that this holy priest is so engrossed in the mystery of the cross that he is now offering, that gets everybody engrossed mm-hmm. in it. That's the true notion of hierarchy. God did not create man as individuals. He created him as, a, as social beings, and he's going to save them communally. You can't be saved outside of this family of the church, uh, Nulla salus extra ecclesiam. There is no salvation outside the church. He has chosen to save the world as a family through the church and through the mediation of the church. And so when you see, just as if you see your father doing a, you know, a great, you know, you, you learn so much from your earthly father. You learn like everything from him, you know. Um, there's an old rabbinic saying, an old Jewish saying that he who does not teach his son teaches him to steal. <laughs> right? So it's like all of it is this, we, we all, because we're social beings, we receive things through those who God has appointed above us, all the way to the Pope, <laughs> all the way through our earthly families, to our local community, to, uh, you know, our local governance, to state governance, to the United States governance, to uh, the ecclesial authorities, to your local parish priest, to your local bishop, all the way to the Pope. All of these are are our mediators. We, it's this, the glorious hierarchy, you know, all the way, even the angels are in a hierarchy, the nine choirs of angels, that there's some angels higher than others. Then the angelic intellect is they can know all things immediately and, and be in all places immediately. There's no, they are utter brilliance. And God has chosen for each of us to have a guardian angel. Everyone has a guardian angel that you can invoke that is sent to protect you. And, uh, by the way, they are way smarter than you and also <laughs> way more powerful than you are. That's very true. And Sometimes so, we like to deny that, but <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. 
Because these guardian angels have been sent specific. They waited for all eternity for you to exist. And now they are serving you as you are alive and will be until you reach your heavenly homeland or are damned. <laughs> and they're, they're hope they are working for one of those options. Yep. And um, they're working for you to get to heaven. And so even there is this mediation. You see God's providence even in that, that you didn't just exist as this kind of like blam, there's Kellen Lake. Like it's all of it's mediated. You had parents. Surprise. You were born of parents. You, you didn't exist except through your mother and father. And you, you also exist in community. And you also exist in, yeah, it, it, all of it is interconnected. And so understanding a proper hierarchy, it starts with the family, goes to the church, and, it, and then it goes all the way up. And then you reach unto God. We only get God through this mediation of all these other people. We only exist through this mediation. And uh, yeah, that's what we have to reclaim. It's not, it's not individualistic. Is our modern age, everyone's split up into their own grooves, as Dostoevsky puts it. Each man heaps up glory for himself and heaps up riches and tries to get as far away from others as possible. But he does not, re- unhappily, he doesn't realize that true peace is found in, in social solidarity rather than an isolated individual effort, as Dostoevsky says. That's that's the truth of it. We are called to this common brotherhood under the church and under Christ. And uh, yeah, we have to reclaim that. Yeah, in regards to the Amazon Synod, as I think we've gone in, what, for an hour and 15 minutes on about. Um, well, it has been an important topic. And, and, <laughs> it's a and, very it's, important topic. And it's something that needs to be addressed. And I don't think it's, okay, we should be we should be worried generally, you know, in a way that not, not killing yourself over this, but a general understanding of of what's going on that god doesn't want us to worry because that's a lack of trust in him but it is okay to reasonably con- be concerned about and when i mean worry i mean concern it's reasonably it's reasonable to be concerned about this and we should keep keep up with it um because it's coming up really fast and a decision is going to be made and we're we're going to find out soon and we just that's just the way that it is. A lot of the world is today is just, that's just the way it is. And, you know, we have to be ready for that. And um, it's an important thing. We need to keep praying. Um, prayer is one of the biggest weapons against evil, man. And I tell you, it does work. A lot of the times we think prayer doesn't work. It does work. I'm telling you, it works. So if we just keep praying. And I know in times of grief, people... People pray very hard and it's not saying that you pray very hard means that you pray intently and you pray a lot because you want something good to come out of this. The hardest part is saying, Lord, your will be done because that's basically that's subject subjecting yourself to God's will. We want a lot of times as humans, because we have no original sin. We want, we want our will to be done. We want this to happen. Please just let this happen. But it's God's will that ultimately has to be done. And, you know, we just have to, we just have to keep praying and God's will will be done. Yep. Um, to kind of, we're probably wrapping up soon, but yeah, we'll, this, we'll is wrap Burke with this. And, this is what Burke and Schneider, um, Cardinal Burke and uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider say 
They write that no one is excused from, quote, being informed about the gravity of the situation and from taking appropriate action for love of Christ and of his life with us in the church. And that, quote, all the members of Christ's mystical body before such a threat to her integrity must pray and fast for the eternal good of her members who risk being scandalized that is led into confusion, error, and division by this text for the Synod of Bishops. These are from our, our the holy successors of the apostles. Um, and um, yeah, and they're telling us that we must pray and fast for this eternal good of the church that um, who risk being scandalized into confusion, error, and division. And uh, once again, Christ, Christ is in charge and he is ruling as king over his church. And so invoking his intercession, just as when the wine ran out at the wedding feast of Cana, Cana, who comes to Christ and says, there is no wine, Mary. So we as the church, right? Mary is not Christ. She didn't say, hey, Alakabam, there's your wine. <laughs> she went to Christ, right? So we as the church must go to Christ through Our Lady and uh, pray and fast, pray and fast pray and for fast. Uh, for this and for the church mm-hmm. and, uh, and trust in Christ and not lose faith. And uh, yeah. yeah, storm storm the halls of heaven with the prayers, <laughs> as as is said. So. We need them more than ever right now, and, and I'm Amen. sure that and and you know, it's a very good thing we pray, and, and results will come. Just want to end on this a prayer. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot, and obviously since it was 9/11 yesterday, I just want to say a quick prayer to all those victims that passed away. As we know, September 11, 2001, two, you know, um airplanes one ran into the north tower one into the south tower uh in new york city and they were um pretty much demolished they they collapsed after like i don't know i'm not sure like 10 15 minutes and it was a big disaster many people got killed and um for those 2977 people 20 23 short of 3000 people um passed away so we're going to end on a prayer in the name of the father son holy spirit amen Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Um, we pray for those victims that passed away in 9-11, that their, their souls may be happily lifted to heaven in the eternal paradise. We'd like to, we thank you for all the graces that you've, you have given us through our mother and through you. And we want to continue to pray for, for all the world, for the topics that we have discussed and we ask for your intercession and Mary's intercession and for all those brave souls that that gave their lives um, on that day in September 11 2001 hail Mary full of grace the Lord is with thee blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb Jesus holy Mary mother, mother of God, God pray, pray for, for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, death. Amen. amen Saint Agnes pray for us all you holy men and women Pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Everybody, thank you for tuning in. We'll be here next week, Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. is our slot time. Thank you for listening to WFRSCC 88.3 FM. Alex, thank you very much. See you next time. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on the podcast. Once again, if you want to follow us live, we go live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at twitch.tv slash Hingus Tringus. Hope to see you again. 
God bless everyone.